This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. It is Memorial Day weekend, an absolutely gorgeous Memorial Day Sunday in the New York metropolitan area. Hope everyone's having a great weekend so far, the unofficial start of summer. But let's also keep in mind what this weekend is about as we pay tribute to those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Uh, Very important to do so. Wish everyone a wonderful start of the summer season and one of the uh, best sports weekends you could ask for. An incredible weekend on the slate started last night with game uh, six at the Garden. That uh, five to two Rangers win over Carolina for the fourth time in these playoffs, staving off elimination, keeping their season alive. And for the second time in as many series, the Rangers setting up a game seven. This time it will not be inside the world's most famous arena. They have to go back down south to Raleigh to take on the Carolina Hurricanes. So you've got that coming up tomorrow night, but we do have have a game seven tonight in the NBA. You heard the update at the top of the hour. The Eastern Conference Finals come down to a winner-take-all game seven tonight between the Heat and the Celtics from Miami. Got to admit, I'm extremely surprised there's a game seven in this one after the way the Heat were just blown out in games four and five. But Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry, two tough, prideful, grizzled veterans They both summoned something on the road in Game 6 when Boston had the opportunity to close out the series and punch their ticket to the NBA Finals. They were unable to do so because of those two Heat veterans. And it will all come down to tonight. And Miami, because they were the top team in the Eastern Conference this year, has home court advantage in tonight's Game 7. We'll talk plenty about that, and we'll also talk a lot about the Rangers game. Right now, the Yankees are in St. Petersburg, Florida, at the Tampa Bay Rays, top of the sixth inning. And Tampa just went on top 2-1. to one. Taylor Walls, a 152 hitter, hit a solo home run off of Luis Severino in the bottom of the fifth inning to give the Rays a 2-1 to one lead. Severino's been pitching outstanding. So is Shane McClanahan, who has allowed just a Glaber Torres home run for the Yanks. Yanks won the first two games of this series in very impressive fashion. In fact, the pitching for the Yankees this entire series has been unbelievable from Thursday night's series opening win to the shutout on Friday with Tyone and Clay Holmes. Even yesterday, you got a very good outing from Garrett Cole. And so far, so good today for Luis Severino. But the Yankees, uh, as they often do, and as most teams do, having trouble hitting against the Tampa Bay Rays. So uh, top of the sixth inning. But just like that, the Yankees have let off with back-to-back singles. So they got a little something cooking. Miguel Andujar just singled to left field. Can we just leave Miguel Andujar in the starting lineup? Put him in left field. Let him bat every game. Leave him alone. He's going to get a hit every game. Some games he'll get two hits. Some games he'll get two doubles. The guy can roll out of bed and just get base hits in the major leagues. In 2018, he should have won the Rookie of the Year. He was robbed. They gave it to Shohei Otani. He has been befelled by injuries and rotations and COVID and a myriad other things since 2018. But now finally, here we are. It's amazing. Four years later, he's getting his shot and he's performing. Leave the man alone. All right. When everybody comes back, I don't want to see Aaron Hicks out there ahead of him. I don't want to see Joey Gallo out there ahead of him. I understand Hicks and Gallo have to play right now with the Stanton injury and the other injuries the Yankees are dealing with. Leave Andujar alone. Seriously, that's a digression. We'll get to the Yankees plenty later, and we'll continue to follow along that game. 
Pa. And of course, your calls, 1-800-919-3776. A lot of guests lined up, bottom of the hour. Dave Maloney, our great color analyst for New York Rangers Radio Broadcasts on the MSG Radio Network and right here in 98.7 ESPN New York. Dave will join me to help set the stage for tomorrow's Game 7. Next hour, uh, Tommy Beer, great basketball writer, great uh, Twitter follow if you are into the NBA. He'll hop on to talk about Game 7 tonight between the uh, Heat and the Celtics. We'll also talk some Knicks offseason. I like to hear what Tommy's wish list is for the Knicks. He's always tuned in on what they need to do to improve. And then Pat Ragazzo, who's the Mets beat writer, we'll chat with him at 5 o'clock from uh, Mets beat writer from Sports Illustrated Fan Nation. Uh, Mets and Phillies coming up after our program, so we'll be with you until 6 o'clock. And then Sunday night baseball coverage begins at 6. we got the Mets for you tonight, Mets and Phillies. Mets looking for the three-game sweep the bats have certainly come alive for the metropolitans you know right now we're in the middle of you know one of these special springtime runs and it's a may is always like a fun time in the sports calendar both from a professional sports standpoint from a youth sports standpoint everyone's back outdoors you've got baseball you've got soccer you've got lacrosse uh you've been cooped up all winter you move the recreational sports which is a big part of so many people's lives those move outside in the last week week and a half the weather has certainly taken a turn for the positive uh and then you add into that you know the nba playoffs obviously they're a two-month-long odyssey same with the stanley cup playoffs we're having a wonderful baseball season right now both the Yankees and the Mets. I just heard Michael Kay mention a stat on the TV broadcast before I came on. Tomorrow, the Yankees and the Mets will both be in first place on Memorial Day for the first time since 1988. It does not happen that often, what we're enjoying uh, this season on the Diamond in New York. So you add that in. Of course, you know, you go through the Triple Crown, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness. We've got the Belmont coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, tennis fans, you've got the French Open. We had the PGA Championship around the corner is the U.S. Open in golf. So it's especially May. May is a busy and it is a terrific time on the sports calendar. And when we're lucky enough here in New York for it to hit our backyard where you have a team that goes on one of these special runs where everybody is talking about that team no matter where you go. You go to your kid's uh, baseball practice. You go to the town pool. You go to the supermarket. You're just out in the neighborhood. All anybody wants to talk about is this Rangers team. Um, No matter where you are, you end up scheduling your entire day around watching the game. A lot of people did that last night. More people will do that tomorrow night because a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup playoffs is about as good as it gets. And there was a time, and I'm old enough at 42 years of age, and I do this for a living largely because of the time I'm about to describe and remember, but there was a time not too long ago, but it kind of is long ago, where it was every spring, you know, we had one of these special runs. And in many, many cases, I'm talking about in the 1990s, In many, many cases, we had two of these special runs where it seemed like every night at Madison Square Garden, there was a huge game. There was a quote-unquote must-win game. There was an elimination game. There was a potential series clinching game. It seemed every single night. I mean, you go back to... 
92 when both the Knicks and the Nets lost in the second round. And for me, this was my coming of age as a sports fan, a sports enthusiast, and ultimately a sports broadcaster. And I know a lot of the people who are listening and who do listen to my show are around the same age range and experience the same thing. 92 Rangers and Knicks both go to the second round. Uh, 94 was obviously the ultimate where the Rangers win the Stanley Cup in Game 7 on the Garden Ice while the Knicks went to Game 7 of the NBA Finals and lost. Before that, you had the Knicks in 93 going to the Eastern Conference Finals and losing. But even 95, both playoff runs into the second round where they lost. 96, same thing. They both reached the second round before they lost. 97 was a special year. The Knicks lost in Round 2. The Rangers went all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh... And then things went dark for the most part. And they went dark for a very, very long time. Now, there were pockets, 99, when the Knicks went to the NBA championship and lost in five games to the San Antonio Spurs. That was certainly a special run. That was a special run because it came out of nowhere. Obviously, that Knicks team was the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. Um, They won the first-round playoff series against the Heat, who were the top seed on Allen Houston's memorable floater from 14 feet away that hit the rim, hit the backboard, and fell in and stunned the crowd with eight-tenths of a second left in Miami. So 99 was a great run, but the Garden was was very, very quiet for a very long time. I mean, think about this. From 2002 through 2005, so that's four springs, you had a total of two playoff games at Madison Square Garden. Two games, not series, Not appearances, two playoff games at Madison Square Garden over those four years. It was when the Knicks faced the Nets in the first round of the playoffs in 2004. If you don't remember, I'm not even going to hold it against you. It wasn't a very memorable series, at least for the Knicks anyway, because they were swept in four straight games by a Nets team that had been to the NBA Finals the previous two years. That was Stephon Marbury's one and only appearance in the playoffs in a Knicks uniform. And those were the only two playoff games that Madison Square Garden um, experienced in a four-year span. And then, you know, then after the the, the NHL lockout, when that league came back in 2006 and the Rangers had a nice run of, you know, being consistent playoff participants, I think from 06 to 2017, I think they only missed the playoffs once in about a 12-year span. And they had some really good runs. It got fun again from the Rangers fan perspective and here in New York in 2012 when they went to the Eastern Conference Finals. And that was especially fun because they faced the Devils before losing in six games. You know, the Rangers make it to round two in 2013. 2014, they make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. And that was a very similar run to what we're experiencing right now because that also included a comeback from three games to one down in uh, the series that year against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Also, that was a second-round series against the Pittsburgh Penguins when Marty San Luis on Mother's Day, right after his mother had passed away, helped deliver a Rangers victory and ultimately a series victory. And they went all the way to the finals, and they lost in five games to the LA Kings. The next year, the Rangers bounced back, and they won the President's Trophy as the best team in the NHL, made it all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals, and had Game 7 on their home ice, where they lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning. And that was about it for that era of Rangers hockey Um, when you're in the moment and experiencing that there is nothing like it but over the last two decades it hasn't been consistent as it once was and especially in recent years Um, 
This is the Rangers' first time in the playoffs at all since 2017. Last year, the Knicks went back to the playoffs uh, for the first time since 2013. They lost in five games to the Hawks, but remember those games at the Garden. The Knicks had home court advantage. Game one, how excited everyone was to be back in there. It was a great game. The Knicks lost at the end. Trey Young made a couple of big plays in the final minute. Game two of that Knicks series, they had a huge comeback. Obi Toppin was big in the second half. He took the roof off the place with one particular dunk during the Knicks comeback. They won that game two to tie the series at a game apiece. The Garden was, and that was also probably about seven years worth of Knicks fans, you know, frustrations bobbled up and, and being let out underneath that Madison Square Garden roof last year. And we've experienced a little bit of that this season, um, especially after they fell behind three games to one, and then you go back, I'm talking about the Rangers now in the first round series against the Penguins, and then you go back to that game five at the Garden. Uh, right when And I understand Sidney Crosby got hurt, and that turned the entire series around. But that's part of the game. That's part of what happens. If Sidney Crosby doesn't get hurt, he was dominating that series. If he doesn't get hurt late in the second period in game five, do the Rangers win that series? I don't know, but to be honest, probably not. But Look, that's what happens, all right? It's it's a physical sport, and injuries happen, and you still have to take advantage of those injuries, and the Rangers did immediately after falling behind, you know, two to nothing. They tied the score at two. They took a three to two lead. They won that game. Uh, they won the next game in Pittsburgh after falling behind two nothing again, and then game seven after falling behind on two, I think, definitely two, maybe three separate occasions. You know, they win in overtime on Artemi Panarin's goal, and and here you are. So it's a it's a team that's very easy to root for because they are not only you know talented enough to get to this point. Look, there's five teams remaining in the Stanley Cup playoffs right now, and the Rangers are one of them. And the more you see them play the way they played last night, when they really midway through the first period, about a third of the way through the first period, took control of the game and then held control of the game the rest of the way. The perfect combination of controlling the puck, uh, putting pressure on the goalies, the inferior goalies, the Carolina Hurricanes. And, and then the most important piece of this equation continues to be what's standing in front of the Rangers net. And what is standing in front of the Rangers net right now is the greatest goalie in the NHL. And it's amazing, and I've spoken about this. I kind of likened it to when Mariano Rivera finally retired from the Yankees in 2013, and after having the best closer in the history of baseball for 17 consecutive seasons, the Yankees really didn't have that much of a drop-off the next few years, whether it was David Robertson or Aroldis Chapman, the year Rivera tore his ACL shagging fly balls. I think it was Rafael Soriano who held down that spot. So it's kind of like an embarrassment of riches for the Yankees in the closer position. And that's exactly what we're seeing with the goalie position. Because you go from Henrik Lundqvist, who by any statistical measure is the greatest goalie in Rangers franchise history. And I think if he had won a Stanley Cup, even if he had won just one in 2014, I think Hank would stand atop the list of the greatest Rangers in history. I really do. I think his numbers compared to others who played his position for this franchise are that overwhelming. Hard to put him on top, though, because he did not win a Stanley Cup. But still, as far as goaltenders go, he is, by any statistical measure, the greatest that this franchise has ever seen. And now you're getting a guy right on the heels of Henrik Lundqvist moving on and ultimately retiring from the NHL. 
you've got a guy who, look, I'm not going to sit here and say he's as good because a lot of people will think that's blasphemous, but there will come a time if this continues. And I understand Hank did it for 15 years, so you got to do it for longer than a year or two, which is what Shesterkin has done, really only one year at this level. But there will come a time if this continues that we're going to have that conversation. We don't have to have that conversation right now. The bottom line is this. The Rangers have the best player in the NHL, arguably, on their side right now. And if I'm rolling out the pucks for one game, whether it's in New York or whether it's in Raleigh or Tampa or Pittsburgh or Edmonton, if I've got a one-game winner-take-all, I'm throwing out the pucks and let's see what happens. You give me the first pick. That's the guy out of all the guys that are left. That's the guy I'm picking. Not McDavid, not Dreisaitl. Um, it's this guy. It's Hank. It's Hank. It's he, it's Igor. <laughs> See, even I'm still thinking about Hank. Seriously, that's that's who they have right now. So that is the great equalizer. So it's a fun run. It's a special run. We'll talk about it in about 10 minutes with Dave Maloney. Also want to get your calls, your thoughts on last night, your thoughts on Game 7. Are you feeling confident? Um, they haven't given you a ton of reasons to feel confident, the Rangers, because they haven't won in Raleigh yet this series. It only takes one, right? And they've put themselves in position to go out and take that final game. So I want to hear what your thoughts are on uh, Game 7 tomorrow night. Either way, it's going to be a fantastic atmosphere and just a fun watching experience. Uh, there are very few things like a Game 7 in sports. And when you're talking about the Stanley Cup Finals, that's even more special. So it's Pat O'Keefe with you this afternoon on 98.7 ESPN New York. So tomorrow we get our Game 7. It will not be at the Garden. We'll be down in Raleigh, North Carolina Rangers and the Hurricanes. Winner advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals to take on the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning, which is as tough an out as you'll find in professional sports right now. One of two Game 7s this weekend. You have the Eastern Conference Finals in the NBA Game 7 tonight in Miami between the Heat and the Celtics. Carolina's splits, and they've been well-documented, but they're 7-0 and at home and they're 0-6 on the road. Uh, they are just the second team in the history of all these sports combined, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL. Just the second team to begin a postseason with 13 straight games that are won by the home team. The 2008 Celtics had their first 15 games won by the home team. Now, that's a good sign for Carolina because the 2008 Celtics eventually did win on the road, and they actually eventually won the NBA championship. That was the last Celtics championship team. Um, so last night, first five minutes were key because the Rangers at one point, I think were being outshot 5-1 to one or 6-1. to one. Carolina came out aggressive. Remember all the talk about the Rangers before game uh, six was kind of how slow they were and how not aggressive they were in game number five, which many acknowledge was their worst game of the series so far. I think you could make a very strong case, and I'll be curious to hear Dave Maloney's thoughts when we join him, when he joins us in about five minutes. Uh, I think last night was the Rangers' strongest game of the series so far. First five minutes, they were not the aggressors. Carolina was, but again, there's the Igor Shesterkin factor. He had to make a couple of big saves early. He was very busy in the first 
first period. Very busy for a goalie whose team had a 2-0 lead. Tyler Mott gets the unassisted goal about seven and a half minutes in. And then the Rangers get the power play. And Mika Zibanejad scores to make it 2 to nothing. Both of them were very, very savable shots for Carolina goalie Antti Ranta. And that's what people have been, you know, shouting about this entire series. Shoot the puck. Put the puck on net. Carolina does not have a strong goaltending situation. They have been playing with their backup goalie these entire playoffs. And then finally, last night after Philip Heedle uh, scored on another shot that honestly could have been stopped by Ranta three and a half minutes into the second period to make it a 3 nothing game. They pulled the plug on Ranta. It'll be interesting to see who's in goal for Game 7 tomorrow night. Uh, Brady Shea scored right away to make it somewhat interesting at 3-1. to one, But a minute and a half later, Heedle scoring his second of the game and his fourth of the playoffs to get that three-goal lead right back was just absolutely monumental. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's three. It's four to two heading into the second after Trocheck cut the lead to two, and then in the third period, the Rangers get that uh, five on three power play that ultimately became a five on four power play. It was a four on four at one point. It was all over the place. Guys coming into the box, going out of the box, and finally, Artemi Panarin breaks through with his first goal of the series. I'll tell you, Panarin hasn't scored a ton of goals these playoffs. I mean, you look, he scored four, which is the exact same amount that Philip Heedle has scored in the postseason. You wouldn't expect that, but Panarin's goals have been pretty timely. That one, in effect, ended the game last night. Of course, Panarin's biggest goal of the playoffs so far was the overtime winner in Game 7 of the first-round series against the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, the Rangers have proven that they can do it at home. They've done it three times at home in this series. They've done it six straight times at Madison Square Garden. In fact, the only home game the Rangers have lost these playoffs was the triple overtime in game one against the Penguins, a game in which Shesterkin made 79 saves. Since then, the Rangers haven't lost at home. And guess what? If the Rangers get through tomorrow night, which is going to be a tough task, we know that, but if they win this series, home ice advantage shifts back to the Rangers for the Eastern Conference Finals. Game one would be at Madison Square Garden on Wednesday night. Now, that doesn't factor in the opponent. As I said, the Tampa Bay Lightning, which has already won a game seven on the road in these playoffs and then just swept through the team that won the President's Trophy in the Florida Panthers. But the Rangers would absolutely love the chance to test themselves against the two-time defending champs. They will have their opportunity to put it all on the line tomorrow night in Raleigh. One of the guys who will be on the call for us, Dave Maloney, will join us next to preview Game 7. It's Pat O'Keefe on Memorial Day Sunday on 98.7 ESPN New York. We've got a Game 7 for you between the Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes tomorrow. Our coverage begins right here at 7.30 on 98.7 ESPN New York on the call uh, will be Dave Maloney of the MSG Radio Network. You hear him all season long, all playoffs long, and uh, kind enough on this Memorial Day weekend to help us preview Game 7. Dave, thanks for the time today. How you doing, man? Doing well, Pat. I'm actually sitting at uh, LaGuardia here, making my way uh, back down to Raleigh again. So looking forward to Game 7 as our both, uh, you know, both fan bases, I'm sure, are uh, looking forward to. But we'll hopefully be an exciting game from the Rangers' standpoint. Hopefully they can crack the code here in uh, Carolina. How would you sum up Game 6? Would you say that was the Rangers' best game of the series? 
Oh, boy, that's a good one. Um, I'm not Yeah, I, I guess, you know, with her back to the wall and then getting the two goals as quickly as they did after she stirred and made, you know, it, it was probably a, a really good encapsulation of really a lot of the season, right? Uh, their goaltender had to make a couple of really good saves, and then shortly thereafter, the offense kicked in. So it was uh, it was good. I mean, the garden was unbelievably alive, and um, you know it's been a we've commented all season long what a great building it's been has been that they uh, the in-house entertainment crew has done a wonderful job of keeping the crowd involved, and this fan base has been wonderfully um, entertained by the way the Rangers play. So it was. Yeah, it was probably as exciting a game as we've seen all season long in there, given the circumstance. And you mentioned Igor, and look, the Rangers outscored them 2 nothing in the first period, but I, I think the point you made is a great one because it seemed like the first four or five minutes, Carolina was more the more aggressive team. They got more shots right from the beginning, and, and Igor made those big saves and really seemed to help the Rangers skaters get them get their sea legs under them with those saves. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, they're probably, the, you know, the, there are five teams left, right? Now it's tomorrow night to be four. And I think uh, Tampa and the Rangers have the best goaltenders that are still playing. And I think it was clearly evident uh, when Bronco missed Mott's shot. You know, he has to make that save. The puck went through him now. And Zibanejad, I thought Zibanejad did a wonderful uh, fall paw, almost a giveaway at the blue line, but he he managed to keep the puck, and then he threw about nine different moves at rounds and just slid it through his pads. So, uh, but still, your goalie needs to make a save, and certainly uh, Igor did, and he's done that. I think it's really commendable um, that it, it cost him two games to kind of figure this playoff situation out over in North America. The games three and four and uh, four in Pittsburgh, but boy, he's been brilliant beyond that. And, and you don't, you know, you just can't win without quality goaltending and the Rangers have certainly gotten that. Dave, another recipe for winning in the postseason is taking advantage of power play opportunities when you get them. The Rangers have been really good at that. Five for 13 over their last four games. Uh, what are you seeing that's working so well from that unit? Well, I think what, what what's happened is they've kind of clued into just being a little sharper, a little quicker to support. Carolina is a very aggressive team. They're aggressive five on five. They're aggressive on the penalty kill. They get to the you know the hash marks quickly, and they don't give you. But the puck will always move more quickly than anyone can ever skate. You know that's the observation that you, you make we've made over the years, and and it's still true despite how quick all these teams are. And I think the Rangers uh, just seem to be a little more committed to if there's a one-on-one battle be committed to the battle, and then uh, have support because you do have one extra guy in the ice. Now, again, the you know, when they're consistently losing face-offs, as, the, as they've been through the series, um, you know, it's particularly effective for the penalty-killing team. Um, if you can win the draw, and Stahl's done a pretty good job. But I think beyond that, the top five have just been, you know, they've picked up the pace a little bit. There's a little more support around the puck against a very aggressive um, Carolina penalty kill. 
Dave Maloney from the MSG Radio Network will be on the call for us tomorrow. Game 7 on 98.7 ESPN New York Rangers and the Hurricanes. Dave on his way down to Carolina giving us a few minutes to look at Game 7. Uh, you mentioned trying to crack the code down there in Carolina. Nobody's been able to crack it, Dave. As we know, the Hurricanes are 7-0 right. at home. They're 0-6 on the road. What is the code? What has to change from the three losses this series? Well, the two games, two and game five, um, were excruciatingly um, boring games from a standpoint. The Rangers just couldn't, game five just couldn't get anything going. And um, I know the coach after talked about uh, to see you're tired. And I, we made the same observation, Kenny and I, over the course of the late in the second into the third. And you know, when you look at game one, uh, they were brilliant for 40 minutes, you know, controlling a lot of the play, quick on the puck, not being um, threatened by what Carolina does. Carolina comes with a hard, quick, heavy pace from get-go to final bell. And the Rangers were able to uh, handle that, manipulate that for two periods in game one, a game they probably should could have won very easily. So I think you've got to get back to that. That kind of thing, and you know, and the turnovers and the different things. And Carolina really feeds off the energy that they they try and generate by being a hard hard on the puck team. And the longer they can play that way, the more uh, their crowd gets engaged. They're not going to kind of overwhelm you on a relative basis with their offense. So I think you just have to be committed from from the get go. Um, to be willing to battle. This is a little bit like the power play. Making sure you take that extra step to engage in a one-on-one battle. And there are support. So there is support. And you just take your chances from there. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, Carolina is a very, very good hockey team. They were second or third best record in the league over the course of the regular season. Uh, but the Rangers have certainly held their own and look forward to kind of just winning those little areas of the ice that have become so important, particularly five on five. People love a line with a nickname, and, and, and they're really into the kid line. And, and you and I, going back mm-hmm. to the beginning of the Pittsburgh series, Dave, I mean, they've played, you know, they're back together now. Uh, they've played mm-hmm. well, really, since the start of these playoffs. Mm-hmm. And Philip Heedle specifically, and you go back to game one, he almost won the game, obviously, with the call that was, right. you know, the goal that was taken away. But what he's doing in this series, I mean, it's, a star is born, it seems, in Philip Heedle. Yeah, he's really, he's been impressive. And I think the thing that's most impressive for him is how much the play that really epitomized who he's become is the uh, battle with Brent, uh, uh, Brandon Smith. He going in the board, he dropped, you know, he lowered his shoulder back into Smith and knocked him right off the puck and came out and scored in the backhand. And he just seems to be so much physically stronger. That was the issue with Philip. He seemed to be off balance a lot and, and uh, get knocked off the puck a lot, uh, but boy, oh boy, it, it sure gives a um, little different perspective now when it comes to the postseason when this thing ends, what they're going to do with the Strom and Cop, and and there's not enough money to go around. Now it looks like Philip Hedl's taking the next level, and that kind of gives the Rangers a, um, a pretty you know solid thing moving forward. He's been tremendous. He really has been, and and really, the guy that's gotten a little bit of a squeeze in this, just he just is Kako. Is you know, whenever there's a penalty, whenever there's a power play, you know, he, his ice time gets kind of cut, and then he was dropped back to the fourth line. And you know, it's funny. Uh, we we were making mention after game, you know, during game five, that just they need that the, the club needs some energy, 
And the young guys have done it. They put them back together last night, and uh, they were good. Lafreniere's uh, taking strides. So, you know, it's a bit of a mystery tour, magical mystery tour for young guys coming in. And now you got a taste of it. You just go out and play. Uh, and they certainly have gone out and play, and the catalyst uh, has been heat It's been great. Dave, how about Gerard Gallant in his first go-around as head coach? You know, he doesn't give you a ton. He, he's obviously very serious, very business. I, I really appreciate his approach. You know, he, he's honest. He's straightforward with you. But, you know, he's not looking to be your best friend. But I, I really I really appreciate kind of watching him from afar his first season. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I, I think he's there's not a calculated bone in his body. I mean, what you see is what you get. And, you know, I was asked last night in the post game uh, on the television side, whether the the um, uh, fatigue comment after five was kind of a mind game to get his team going, I I I, I, I do not see that from him. I, he honestly felt his team was tired. Now whether they should have been tired or not doesn't matter. Uh, that was his observation. He wasn't making a big deal of it, but the reality is, I you know, we in the booth looked at it the same way. And I just think he's he's been tremendous. He just he's a very honest um, small town guy. That certainly he's been coach of the year once, runner-up once, took Vegas to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals as a neophyte franchise in the league. And I've just been impressed that when I have had the cap- or, uh, ability to do the games on the television side from uh, rinkside, I do get the chance to talk to the coaches after the end of the second period. And their attitude is always, rarely do they ever look behind. They look behind only to learn, not to harp on anything. And then it's next shift, next game, whatever. And I think that um, attitude is permeated r- right down to this lineup. They have just this kind of demeanor, and it's almost a calmness to them. Now, listen, when he glares and when he – there are going to be times where he's going to command attention. I mean, after game – what was it, game four? Yeah. <laughs> uh, back he bag skated them, you know. And, it, 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 you know, most of us are like, wow, I'm not sure that's the way to go at it, but it's – you know, they win straight, three straight. So I just think he's, you know, I get that with COVID, we haven't had much uh, the same kind of access to the coaches we used to have. Um, but uh, what I take from him in the limited conversations I had is what you see is what you get. And it's very good. You know, he accentuates the positive. He asks for very little, but he demands that for the very little that he asks that you perform, you give it your best shot. I think he's been great. I agree, and I've really appreciated his approach really all season long, and, and what you right. see is what you get. Um, right. Dave, Dave Maloney, our guest, and, and he'll be on the call for Game 7 tomorrow, Rangers and Hurricanes from Raleigh. Rangers looking to break through on the road in this series and advance to the Eastern Conference Finals where Tampa Bay awaits. Do uh, you have any inkling on who you think we'll see in net tomorrow night, Dave? Um, she's Durkin. <laughs> Maybe I should have been a little more clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about the Hurricanes? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, listen, if if Anderson is not ready, uh, which it doesn't sound like, they've got to go back to Ronja. Ronja's numbers are, have been terrific uh, in their building. Uh, so it would surprise me if it wasn't Ronja, uh, unless there's something you know funky going on with him. Uh, but his numbers at home have been fabulous, and I think that's – uh, so I would suspect, unless Anderson is ready to go, I, I, I would suspect it would be Ronson. 
I was, and I'll let you go on this, but I was opening up the show this afternoon with just kind of pointing out how this is one. It's starting to feel like one of those special runs through spring where uh, this team is kind of consuming everyone in your neighborhood. It's all anybody wants to talk yeah. about. They schedule their whole day around watching the game. You know, you mentioned the atmosphere inside the garden during the home games. Uh, it, it's feeling like that. Is it feeling like that to you as well? I mean, from your perspective? Oh, there's no question. I mean, we, we've come through a couple of, you know, on a number of fronts, of, um, you know, with the pandemic, right? I mean, we've all been affected one way or the other. and Thankfully, most of us have pulled through. And um, I just think, and this team uh, is really a quality group. They've, they've, got the, they've got the elements of old-time hockey. Uh, they're not afraid to kind of push back. Um, they play an exciting brand of hockey. The goaltender's been all world as i said the you know the building the management in the building has done a wonderful job engaging the fan but the, the product has been pretty good also and it's just fun i think it's it's been a really fun it, it was an innocent story uh, that really early in the season the only people that really believed in them were the in the story were the guys that were in the locker room you know around the league it was just Turk and this and the rangers weren't very good beyond him and and maybe for the first month or six weeks, that was the story. But boy, oh boy, the more you watched, uh, the more they kind of bought into what um, Gallant and his staff was kind of preaching. It became a legitimate story. And then it's been a fun story. They're quality guys. I mean, uh, and improving players. Keandre Miller has been wonderful. Mm. Great Jacob, Jacob Truba has had his best season as a Ranger. I think he's been the most competitive Ranger. You can talk about a number, a number of players and then, oh, by the way, while well, Zabanjad's been pretty good, Kreider hit 52. You know, there's just so many good stories to this group that um, really in a lot of ways came from, from very limited expectations beyond what they thought they could, were able to do. And they're one game away from going to the uh, conference finals. Well, like I said, they've become appointment television. They've become appointment radio. We'll be locked in tomorrow night, Dave. So safe travels down right. to Carolina. We're looking forward to hearing you guys on the call. All right, Pat. Thanks for calling. Have a good one and happy Memorial Day. You too. Thanks a lot. And thanks always for coming on at a moment's notice. Dave Maloney uh, getting a set for Game 7, Rangers and Hurricanes. Uh, you can hear it right here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Our coverage tomorrow night will begin at 7.30. We can open up the phones when we come back. 1-800-919-3776. we got some NBA conversation coming up as well. Speaking of Game 7s, so we've got one of those tonight in Miami between the Heat and the Celtics. Yankees, meanwhile, have fallen behind 4-1, to a tough seventh inning that continues down in Tampa. This one is starting to take on the feel of so many recent Yankees-Rays games that have been so frustrating for the Yankees and their fans. <laughs> So the Yankees do trail 4-1 to one now in the top of the eighth inning. Aaron Judge leading off that inning for the Yanks against the bullpen for the Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays are two innings away from earning a split of the weekend four-game set. Yanks don't play tomorrow. A quirk in the schedule that does not have them playing on Memorial Day. And the Mets are playing a night game tomorrow. So that, that stinks, in my opinion, as Judge has just gone up and over the fence in center field. So it's now 4-2. to two. Thank you. Uh, Judge, what's that, his 18th home run of the season? It's a pretty good year. Um, so four to two Yankees with nobody out in the top of the eighth inning. Number 18 for judge, no day baseball tomorrow for the Yankees or the Mets. And, and ironically, as uh, I pointed out the stat that I heard Michael K give earlier, 
It comes in a year in which, for the first time since 1988, both the Yankees and the Mets will be in first place on Memorial Day, yet we cannot sit down Memorial Day afternoon and enjoy a ball game that includes either of them. The Mets do play tomorrow at 7-10 when they begin a series at home against the Nationals. Yankees are completely off. And again, the Mets are playing at 7-10, and yeah, I mean, people will be tuned into that, but I think more people in New York tomorrow night are frankly going to be locked into Game 7 of the Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes, which begins at 8 o'clock, and our coverage right here on 98.7 ESPN New York begins at 7.30 tomorrow. Thanks to Dave Maloney. I mean, he's always great. You're not going to get better Rangers information from anyone on the planet. He's with the team all season long, obviously former captain of the Rangers and our color analyst here along with Kenny Albert and Don LaGreca for so many years. He does such a great job and has such enthusiasm when talking about the team, but realistic too. Uh, You know, certainly not a cheerleader for the team, even though he's an important part of the organization. You know, the point that he made, it's kind of has the feeling of, yeah, everything for this Rangers team seems like it has come together this year. I mean, when you looked at, the Rangers before the season. And I remember being on a lot of those broadcasts, interviewing Dave during our pregame show, uh, the first month of the season that he alluded to. And it was basically on many nights, Igor Shesterkin being superhuman. And that was the reason the Rangers were winning games early. They had not put it all together. Well, they've put it all together right now. I mean, you can go up and down the list. And if you were kind of laying out, all right, what needs to happen this year for the Rangers to make a deep run in the playoffs? And I think we can all agree now this has been a deep run. There's five teams remaining in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and they're one of them. If that's not a deep run, I don't know what is. Obviously, the first thing on your list would be, well, Igor Shesterkin has to become one of the best goalies in the NHL. Check. You need the young Rangers that you've been bringing up through the system and hopefully building around uh, take a step forward. And while it wasn't linear and it didn't even necessarily happen consistently throughout the regular season, I think we can all sit here now as we get ready for game seven of the second round of the playoffs that Keandre Miller is a force in the NHL. We talk about the kid line. Philip Heedle has four goals in these playoffs. Alexi Lafreniere, Capo Caco, These guys are all playing right now as well as they have in their career. You need your stars to continue being your stars. And Zabanajad is every bit that right now. It's been a little up and down in the playoffs for Artemi Panarin. But as I pointed out earlier, his goals that he has scored has been as big as anybody's. Uh, Chris Kreider, huge in the Pittsburgh series, 52 goals during the regular season. Um, Adam Fox is Adam Fox. You have one of the best defensemen in the NHL. So it's kind of like, you know, then Ryan Lindgren comes back. And and last night, Barclay Goodrow comes back. And these guys add a little bit of extra grit to the Rangers lineup. I mean, you didn't realize how much you were going to miss a guy like Lindgren after he was lost following game one of the series against Pittsburgh. He missed a couple of games. And then he came back for that game five. And that's when the whole series turned around. It was a gutty performance for Lindgren. Uh, He's been a mainstay 
in the Rangers lineup on the blue line ever since returning. And now we'll see if they can get a similar bump from the return of Barclay Goodrow, who was one of their most important players during the entire regular season. Guy could play any spot on the forward line. He could play on any line one through four. I mean, he really is a jack-of-all-trades uh, valuable veteran presence who was part of the last two Stanley Cup championship winning teams. So right now you look at the Rangers and I'm hearing questions like, well, if they lose tomorrow, was this a successful season? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it was. But it could be a more successful season. It could be a special season. Now, if you know the fact that Dave Maloney and I are talking about Rangers hockey on Memorial Day weekend, that means you had a damn good season. Now, there's a difference between that and a special season, and the difference is tomorrow night's game. Can you win a Game 7 on the road and get yourselves to the Eastern Conference Finals? Well, we'll continue to talk about that, plus the uh, other Game 7 coming up next. Here to talk to me about the uh, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals is Tommy Beer, one of the best NBA Twitter followers you'll find. You can get him at Tommy Beer, also the author and host of the What's on Tap with Tommy Beer newsletter and podcast and a friend of the program. Tommy, I appreciate you coming off the beach and giving me a couple of minutes this afternoon. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in New York. We got a Game 7 tonight. We got the Rangers going to win a Game 7 on the road tomorrow. And I'm on the Pat O'Keefe show. What more could I possibly ask for? It is a good weekend for Tommy Beer, to be sure. All right, we got a Game 7 tonight, as you said. How surprised are you, Tommy, that we do have a Game 7 tonight, considering the way Games 5 and 6 went? Yeah. Excuse me, 4 and 5. Exactly, yeah. Going into Game 6, I thought we all kind of assumed that that would kind of be the, the last hurrah for the Heat. Um, Jimmy Butler looked a shell of himself. Kyle Lowry was, you know, 1 for 18. You know, him and Str- uh, Max Struess were a combined 1 for 18. It just looked like they couldn't possibly play any worse where the Celtics were hitting their stride. They've been playing well for months. We know what they bring on the defensive end of the floor, well coached. Um, and you, you assume they're going back to Boston, they're going to put the heat away. Um, you know, obviously not take them lightly, but uh, Jimmy Butler put the, put the heat on his back. Um, uh, so shockingly, Tatum and Brown were very quiet in the fourth quarter and the second half. Uh, and here we are. Uh, the good news for us is we got a game seven, although I'm sure that the Celtics fans would have liked to have gotten it out of the way on, on uh, Friday night. You know, as I looked at Game 6, the only path I could see towards Miami extending this series was for Butler and Lowry to kind of, you know, turn back the clock. And Lowry had looked terribly physically in this series. The last three games, Jimmy Butler looked like he lost the spring in his legs. But, you know, these two guys, along with P.J. Tucker... The, I'll even include the head coach, Eric Spolster. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm going to say the word heat culture here, but I'm not going to, you know, pin it all on that. These are just tough dudes. You know, Butler's as tough as they come. Tucker, Kyle Lowry. I mean, they're gamers. And I know that's kind of a cliche. My only question is, do you think they can do that twice? Yeah, so I, I agree with you, Pat. You know, you, the, I think cliche, the, the, the cliche of heat culture is kind of, uh, you know, uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but I subscribe. Uh, but I do believe that part of the reason it gets the kind of play that it does is because they bring in the right kind of guys. And and as you mentioned, Kyle Lowry's not a you know a heat culture guy. He's just a warrior from Villanova, from Philly. Um, this is a dude that knows how to play 
plays well in big games. Even, you know, he's, he's one of those players. He'll miss his first 18 shots. He knows the 19th is going in. Um, same with P.J. Tucker. I think one of the reasons the Bucks are not playing uh, in this series, uh, the reason they were eliminated by Boston in the prior series because they lost his grit, his toughness. They certainly could use his perimeter defense um, against the Celtics. Uh, so as a roundabout way to say, um, I have a tough time counting out a – Heat team that has Jimmy Butler that is very well coached. Uh, Eric Spolstra uh, ranked one of the top 15 coaches of all time. I think that may be a little bit premature, but uh, make no mistake about it. He's a great coach. They're at home. Uh, Miami's not a great home court advantage, as we know. Um, but uh, all that being said, I think I, I don't. I think Jimmy Butler will play well. I know Lowry will 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 attempt to to do the things that made him successful: distribute the basketball, knock down open three pointers that he did in Game Six. All those things put into the mix, I still can't bet against the talent level that the Celtics are going to bring to the table. Um, Tatum, Brown, you name it. Um, I think Tatum has a big bounce-back game. I like Brown coming up well in Game 7. Um, they have a, they have some intangible uh, guys themselves that kind of fit that mold in Marcus Smart, Al Horford. Um, I'll even throw Grant Williams in the mix. Um, so for that reason, I, I think Boston closes the series out, um, although the series has been unpredictable, as we know. Yes, and I think Game 6 was the most unpredictable game, and I agree with you. I mean, Boston, if healthy, and look, they're reasonably healthy right now. I think right. they're the supremely or superior talented team. But let, let me talk to you about Jason Tatum, because the numbers from last game look good. He had 30 points. He had nine rebounds. He took one shot in the fourth quarter. Um, I think for Tatum, he's getting into legacy time. So this is his, well, this is the Celtics' fourth trip to the Eastern Conference Finals. He wasn't there for the first one. He was a rookie for the second one. But the first couple times they went, they really weren't expected to win. You know, they were playing against LeBron and the Cavaliers. And then you had that weird bubble series against the Miami Heat. If they don't win this series, and Tatum has now ascended to a first-team All-NBA player, and rightfully so, he was great this year. If they don't win this series, though, that's going to hang on Tatum for a while, I think. A hundred percent. This is one of those defining games. Um, and one of the things I always look at going through a series, one of the first questions I always ask, what team has the better player? Because as we know in the NBA, it's so important. It's usually the team with the best player wins the series. And now we're down to a game seven. So which team is Jimmy Butler or Tatum, the guy you want? You know, let's say they're, they're picking sides. And, and, you know, an independent coach can pick anybody he wants from the floor. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Butler made a strong case that he's that guy that you want when the chips are down. Um, that being said, uh, last time I thought, you know, the last time the Celtics needed to win a game, obviously um, the last time they played an elimination game um, was that, that, that game six against the Bucs. And that fourth quarter he had when the six were, when the Bucks were making that strong run in Milwaukee, Tatum stepped onto the floor, knocked out four shots in a row, three three-pointers. To me, that was kind of his coming of age. It's cool when you can see that player take that leap. Obviously, he was first-team All-NBA this season. But it's another thing to see him do it in a big game. And that's what he did. And, he, you know, so for, so for that reason, um, I, I personally think Tatum is – if the Celtics are going to win, they need a big game from Tatum and they need a big second half from Tatum, and I think they get it tonight. So to answer your question, um, yes, this is definitely one of those games that is a legacy-defining game, um, you know, for Tatum, for Jimmy Butler, for Kyle Lowry, um, but, but certainly for Tatum. He's, you know, if he wants to, you know, really – put his stamp and say, I'm one of the five best players in the NBA. I'm one of the 10 best players in the NBA. These are the moments in which you have to make it happen. 
Tommy Beer is our guest, the author and host of the What's on Tap with Tommy Beer, both newsletter and podcast. A lot of Knicks stuff there, a lot of NBA stuff there as well. And we'll get to the Knicks also. And this is kind of a segue towards that, Tommy, because, you know, I'm looking at this Boston roster. Tatum was drafted. Robert Williams was drafted. Uh, Jalen Brown, they drafted him. They drafted Marcus Smart. They drafted Grant Williams. They drafted Peyton Pritchard. That's, you know, that's basically their rotation. They, you know, Al Horford and, and Derek White are really kind of the two outliers there. Um, that is very, very rare in the NBA. I, I don't know if that is looked at closely enough as being really impressive for the Celtics to be in this situation with virtually an entire rotation of guys who they drafted. It's it's so important, Pat, and it's funny you mention that because I was thinking about that earlier this week, and I wrote a little bit about it. They six of the seven top scorers on the Celtics are, are all drafted by the originally drafted by the team, which is rare. The other team in that same boat, six of the seven top scorers, the Golden State Warriors, mm. Clay, Steph, Moot. You know, so it just it just goes to show you. Um, Wiggins is the only player on Golden State that that, that you know is the outlier in that respect, and obviously he's played an important role. Um, but yes. And, and the cool thing about the Warriors, you know, similar to the, to the Celtics, they didn't have any top uh, number one overall picks on that roster other than Wiggins. You know, so the, the, the players the Warriors drafted, Steph, Clay, um, uh, Kevon Looney, those guys were all drafted seventh or later. Um, so I think it speaks to, to – I think the point you're getting at is how important the draft is. You don't necessarily need to win the lottery to get the top pick, but you need to nail your lottery picks, and you need to nail your 15th overalls, your 17th overalls. Get a Robert Williams 28th. Get a Grant Williams 22nd. Um, the opportunity to get those guys, lock them into contracts, get them in your – you know get them in your system, get in your building, um, have them develop as teammates. You know, think about all the games, you know – Tatum's only 25, but think about how many big moments he play, he's already played with Jalen Brown. Those guys have trust in each other. Um, they have trust in the system, and you know, that, that's, you know, obviously Ime Doka's a new coach, um, but they're, you know, the system that Brad Stevens kind of instilled in those guys from, you know, five, six years ago pays huge dividends ago. So, yes, probably more so than any other sport. I guess you obviously could make a, a case for football as well. Um, you got you to gotta nail your early round draft picks, especially you draft a quarterback, whatever the case might be. But um, the draft is so it, it immensely important in the NBA. All right, so let's talk about the Knicks and their offseason. And not necessarily draft, but just big picture. Draft, free agency, trade. What is on top of your wish list for the Knicks this offseason? I think they got to figure out what they're going to do with with Julius Randle. Um, my opinion is they need to part ways with Randle. Um, obviously, listen, the guy averaged 20-10-5. That's you know, tremendous numbers. His efficiency took a big dip. There's a, a, a toxicity with the relationship between the fans. Um, I just don't know if it's going to get much better. I think going into the year, there's still, if they don't make any significant changes, how much better can that team be than the team that finished, you know, um, 11th and outside the play in the play in range? They don't have much cap space. Um, they have the 11th overall pick. It's probably unrealistic to expect that guy to, to, to come in and make a big impact. Um, listen, if they if, if they put you know Randall on the table and they have to and they have to give up. 30, you know, thirty cents of the dollar back. Then you don't you don't make a deal just for a deal take. I certainly don't think it's reached the point the point of no return. I think you know Randall can come in and say, "Listen, I've recommitted myself. I'm going to work hard defensively." Um, but I, I just think you're playing with fire. Um, and and while you obviously you don't want to trade a guy, you, you, you prefer to sell high. Obviously, the year after he was all, second team All NBA. Um, but you know they re-signed him. He's locked into a relatively affordable contract. He's just outside the top 50 as overall players. So it's not like it's an albatross contract that they have to part with first round picks. 
Um, I, obviously, some teams prefer not to have a player um, with Randall's you know, kind of attitude, kind of offense-first mentality. But if, if you find the right fix, I think another GM – it's smart enough, too, because Randall's talented. He's proven that he can you know, put, kind of put a team on his back, took the Knicks you know, 10 games over 500 into the first round when he played at his best two years ago. Um, so I think if you can ideally find a partner, whether that's a deal with the Pacers that, big, that brings Malcolm Brogdon back, um, you're not going to get a you know a, a you know an all you know an all NBA talent back. You're not going to get a, a top three pick or whatever the case might be. But I think there's opportunities there um, to, to find Randall a new home. I think at this point it's best for both the team and the player that they kind of part ways and and and, and find a better situation for both for both the team and the player going forward. Interesting, interesting time. We're talking with Tommy Beer, great NBA Twitter follow at Tommy Beer. We were speaking about how well the Celtics have drafted, and in back to back years they get Jay. Jalen Brown, third overall pick. Jason Tatum, third overall pick. The Knicks, their last time they picked third overall did pretty well. R.J. Barrett just finished his third season. He has improved each year from his rookie year where he had some ups and downs. Uh, I'm still steamed that he wasn't voted all-rookie first or second team behind the likes of Eric Paschal and others. Uh, But he got better his second year where he was the second-best player on a playoff team. Obviously averaged 20 points per game his third year. What is the uh, what's a realistic next step for RJ Barrett? Well, that's the other. You know, you, you mentioned kind of off-season goals, priorities, issues. Do the Knicks offer a full rookie max extension to RJ Barrett? That's kind of what's going to be on the table. That's what his agent's going to be looking for. Um, they don't. The Knicks are. They don't have to have their hand forced right now. We still be restricted if they don't sign into an extension this year. They still have him as a restricted free agent the following year. Um, but if they were unsure of him, you know, they'd lock. You know, John Moran, for instance going to sign that rookie contract a no-brainer um rj barrett i don't i don't know if i feel comfortable committing 180 million dollars to the player that I, do i like rj barrett's overall skill set yes do i think he's handled new york exceptionally well since the day he arrived as an 18 year old yes do i think he's committed to getting better at his craft yes do i think he can be the best player on a championship contender Probably not. I think he's more suited as kind of a second banana, um, you know, maybe on a really good team, a, a great third piece that can be the best player for a couple weeks. Um, you know, there, there were two players in the NBA that attempted over 17 field goal attempts per game and posted an effective field goal percentage below 50% last year. That was Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett. Mm. So that kind, of, that kind of speaks to their – we know they can get points. We know their, 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 their stat lines at the end of the games more often than not look well. And there's value there. There's no discounting that. Um, but he didn't look – he kind of disappointed me a little bit on the defensive end over the second half of last season. I'd like to see him take a step forward in that direction, kind of commit himself to being a better defender because he, he has the skill set, has the athleticism, that combination of athleticism, size, and strength. He needs to finish better around the basket. Um, so there are definitely aspects to his game. And what I like most about Barrett, and the reason I feel comfortable committing to him long term, is I think he's committed to. I think that's his, you know, he, that's his passion. That's what he wants to do. He's not going to skip days in the weight room. Um, so I think if he would be willing to settle for a little bit less than the max, I'm willing to give him a four or five year deal. I'm just not sure if I want to commit 30 to 35 percent of my cap going forward with a player that's that that has a you know somewhat limited skill set. You know, I think one of the great things about Barrett and also one of the downsides at the same time, Tommy, is I, I think he truly feels he I'm, in fact, I'm quite certain he truly feels he's as good as Zion Williamson when he's healthy yeah. 
and as good as John ja Morant. Ja Morant. And, and he's he's yeah. not. I mean, he again, it, it, 20 point per game scorer has made tremendous strides. He's not those two guys right now. So, but I, I think he carries himself like that, which could be a positive on certain nights and in yeah. certain occasions. But my point is, do you think if he's not offered that max, do you think that would create some friction? I could see it. Yeah, I'm listen. I and, and he has a reason to feel it because I, I, you're not going to be that good if you don't believe it. Obviously, that's that's kind of the first step. Um, you know, is he willing to give New York a bit of a hometown discount? Is he willing to justify it to himself by saying, "Listen, I'm will, I'm going to leave a little bit less on the table because I want the front office to have the resources with which they can improve the roster around me." There's obviously ways around that you, that you can kind of soothe the, the psyche um, of a of a superstar top tier athlete. But definitely, make no mistake, he's going to enter conversations being, "Listen, it's backs or nothing." I'm I'm sure that's what his agent's going to tell the first time he sits down with with Leon Rose and World Wide West and those guys. They listen. 20-point scorer, 21 years old. And there are very few players in NBA history that have put up the cumulative points, rebounds, assists totals before their 22nd birthday that, that R.J. Barrett has. Th- those, those two players being Luka Doncic. Um, and um, I, think, I think Doncic is the only other player with 1,500 points, 500 rebounds, 500 assists, and 153-pointers. Um, so, it, again, the field goal percentage is a major concern. On the other end of the floor, defensively, there's things he needs to work on. But there, there's enough there to believe. And listen, every team in the league would, lo- would, league would love to have R.J. Barrett. The question is, what, do you commit that full max, that, that full max contract? That's, that's really the only issue. I mentioned, and rightfully so, Tommy, you're one of the better NBA Twitter followers because this is the kind of stuff that we get. Anybody who uh, peruses your Twitter timeline would probably know that you think that the Knicks should go into next year with a different starting point guard than the guy who started the majority of games there last year. Is that fair to say? You think so? You you, you think so? You have, have I made that point clear yet? I, I, I don't know if I was on the fence there or not. So not Alec Burks. I don't think so. I don't think a 30-year-old shooting guard is the ideal uh, point guard for, for a team at the start of a rebuild. Call me crazy, um, but you know, maybe give the 21-year-old that, 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 that basically averaged the triple-double over the last week of the season. Maybe, see, maybe give him a shot. You know, Maybe I'm nuts, but what can you say? <laughs> so tonight, you like Boston tonight? I like Boston. I, listen, uh, uh, a road team giving points. Uh, do I, I don't want to bet against Jimmy Butler. I don't want to get bet against Spo in a big game that, that their team has home court. That being said, I like, I trust, I trust, I trust Tatum. I trust Brown. I've been going back and forth. End of the day, um, give me Boston. I, I think Boston gets it done. I think it's a close game. Um, fourth quarter, last five minutes. Boston, uh, um, Tatum, Brown, Smart's going to make a big play defensively. He's going to knock down a three pointer. Al Horford's going to box out. You know those little things. That, that the, the things that, that veterans do, they'll contribute. Um, I, I just I just don't trust the legs enough of Butler, Lowry, and those guys that, to to replicate that performance. Um, so give me Boston as a safer bet. No, I, where, I where agree you with you. I, do, you where, do you feel strongly? You, you, you think Boston? You got I, Boston? For, I would pick Boston for, for the same reasons. Yeah. I just I, yeah. I I don't know that Butler and Lowry can do it again. I think that I think they keep it close. Yeah. I think these guys are tough. I think they're prideful, grizzled veterans. Yeah. Yes, Boston yes. is more talented. Um, but listen, I'm not counting Miami out for those reasons. What One more for you. Uh, in the NBA Finals, how much of a chance do you give uh, either of these teams against Golden State? Do you think it'll be a competitive series? Absolutely. I, I think if Boston I think if Boston can win tonight. You would have asked me Friday afternoon. I said Boston wins Friday night 
and then they win the finals. You know, and it's, it's six or seven games. I don't think they blow out the Warriors by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't. I think Boston was. A, I think the Mavs were a little bit overrated going to the Western Conference Finals, um, and, and so I think the Warriors dispatching of them easily didn't really shock me. Um, so I, 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 I listen. I, I, Steph, Clay, those guys can shoot the lights out. They've been playing well defensively, but Boston and again. Speaking, you know, just to tonight's game as well, since the end of January, they have the best defensive efficiency in the NBA, the best offensive efficiency in the NBA, the best net rating in the NBA. These guys have been really good for a really long time. Um, so I think if they can get over the hump tonight, I think they actually do end up beating the, the Warriors in the finals. If healthy. I agree with that, if healthy. If, if, if they, yes, if, if uh, i got to see Smart, play, Smart you know, stay healthy. He's and like, Williams. He's, and, and, and Rob Williams is a huge component, especially protecting the paint. It's tonight in Game 7 and also against the Warriors because they knock down threes, but Steph and those guys also get into, get into the lane and cause a, a ton of havoc. So you need Rob Williams, Rob Williams protecting the basket. Well, listen, settle in. Enjoy tonight. Tommy, great stuff. I always appreciate the time. Thanks, man. Thanks, Pat. Be good. All right, there's Tommy Beer, the author and host of the What's on Tap with Tommy Beer newsletter and podcast. You can get him on Twitter at Tommy Beer. So we got a Game 7 tonight, which you can hear on 1050 AM between the Celtics and the Heat. Our coverage begins at 7.30, tip off a little after 8.30 tonight. Yankee game just wrapped up at Tampa Bay. Yanks lose 4-2, to so after winning the first two in very impressive fashion, the Yankees and the Rays end up splitting this four-game series on the road. The Yankees pitching outstanding throughout their starting pitching, outstanding throughout all four games, but they do come up short for the second day in a row. All right, so a frustrating loss for the Yankees this afternoon in St. Pete. 4-2, to two, they go down to the Tampa Bay Rays. Luis Severino pitched really well, um, but he left the game with an out in the seventh inning and runners on first and second. And Aaron Boone went to Ron Marinaccio, the kid out of Tom's River, New Jersey, who was a really nice story early in the season for making a team and contributing. He struggled his last few outings. Marinaccio came in. He walked the first two batters he faced, and then he hit a guy. So that forced in two runs and made a two-to-one game a four-to-one game. Judge then would homer in the top of the eighth inning to make it four to two, which was the final score. So tough beat for Severino because he left the game trailing two to one. He ends up being charged with all four earned runs. He went six in the third inning, struck out eight, uh, pitched 103 pitches. His uh, ERA is now at 3.38, which is excellent. It was actually his first loss of the season. He is now three and one after taking the L today. Severino has been outstanding considering what he went through or didn't go through or wasn't able to do the last three regular seasons, it's incredible. You knock on wood when talk about Severino and his health, but it's incredible what the Yankees have been able to get out of him. Their entire starting rotation, even this series, where they lost the last two games in frustrating fashion. They had to lead both games. They couldn't hold on. Uh, they end up splitting this the weekend series, which is fine. But even in this series, they're starting pitching has been outstanding from Cortez to Tyone on Friday night. Yesterday, Cole gave you a really good outing. 
and now Luis Severino. So the Yanks are off tomorrow inexplicably on Memorial Day. No game at all, not even a night game for the Yankees. And they are back in action on Tuesday when the LA Angels come to town. It'll be Montgomery against Noah Syndergaard making his New York return on Tuesday night at Yankee Stadium. 1-800-919-3776. Thanks to Tommy Beer. Great stuff on tonight's Game 7 and on the Knicks offseason to come. Uh, also, thanks to Dave Maloney, who joined us last hour to preview our Game 7 tomorrow night on the ice between the Rangers and the Hurricanes, which you can hear right here on 98.7 ESPN New York tomorrow night starting at 7.30. I'll be back with you tomorrow uh, afternoon as well. Dan Grasa and I will be filling in on the Michael K. Show from 3 to 7. So looking forward to that. A lot of Rangers talk there as well. But let's hear from you as we open up the phones and start off with Simon in New Haven. Simon, how are you doing today? Oh, terrible. I mean, the pitchers are doing good, but, I mean, we we got to get rid of Gallo and Hicksman. I'm telling you. I mean, whatever these hitting coaches are doing, it's not working. It's the same old record. I'm telling you. I mean, uh, how hard can it be to hit a baseball? I mean, it, these pitchers pitch their you-know-what's-up. They, they don't get any respect and run support. I mean, all, they, all the hitters are fond of doing is playing ping-pong, grounding out and popping up. It's like watching Brett Gardner with Hicks and Gallo. Come on already. <laughs> hit the ball. You're still you're still going after Gardner. He's not even on the team anymore. Can't you but, let the but man Hicks, rest? Hicks and Gallo are starting to get like him. I, I think Gardner, Gardner, I would say, contributed a lot more to the Yankees during his career than Hicks or Gallo. Can we uh, I mean, I mean, is, is it a conspiracy against these pitchers that the Yankee hitters don't want to hit for them? I mean, do they not like it for some reason? I don't think so. Uh, I haven't asked them, but I would say no, it's not. Uh, you, you do know the Yankees are 33 and 15, right? So, I know we're in first, but we have to keep we have to keep adding on and keep increasing the lead. You know, keep, you know, stay where we are. We you know we got to win these games here. But Boone doesn't seem to understand that. What would you have him do, uh, Gallo and Hicks? You want them out? Who would you put in? You talking about guys that are not currently part of the uh, organization? Yeah, I was thinking maybe uh, I know it was talking about get, maybe getting Ben Attendee or Soto, but I know they're out, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what else? What else can we do? I mean, I would rather have Benintendi or Soto than than Hicks and Gallo. I mean, I mean, I too would rather have Juan Soto than Joey Gallo or Aaron Hicks. I agree. I mean, I mean, why is it when, when these players come over here from another team, you know, like like Gallo, he hit the ball when he's in Texas, right? When he comes over here, it's like he leaves his baggage at the door. You forget how to hit. I mean, come on. Yeah, he's these not good. You just need some run support, respect, not to for not for Boone to be the manager of a ping pong team. I hear you, Simon, and, and thanks as always for the call. Listen, Gallo and Hicks aren't good. I mean, you know, th- there was some silliness with that call, we can all admit. But, you know, he's he calls all the time after a Yankee loss, and he's a little frustrated, and that's his right. But the points he was making are good ones. Joey Gallo is not a good baseball player. And Aaron Hicks, <laughs> Aaron Hicks, seriously, might be and I I've been saying this off air. I haven't been on here in a couple of weeks, so I'm I'm excited for the I'm excited that Hicks gave me the opportunity to say this today. Aaron Hicks is one of the worst Yankees I've ever seen. I mean, he really is. He is completely useless and frustrating. And so many times they would be better off just putting anybody else up in his place. You know, Gallo, at least once in a while, can run into a fastball and hit one over the fence. Neither one of them, in my opinion, are the answer full-time. I don't know what they're going to do with those spots. Right now they're getting by with the starting pitching being outstanding. But that's not going to be the case all season long. It's not always going to be that way. Some of those performances are going to regress to the mean. I mean, is Nestor Cortez, have we snapped our fingers and Nestor Cortez 
is now a 1.50 ERA pitcher. Is he Dwight Gooden in 1985? Is he Sandy Koufax? Is he Bob Gibson? Is he Jacob DeGrom before last year's injury knocked him out for the second half of the season? Because that's what the numbers would indicate. So, no, I don't think he's those guys. I think he's turned a corner as an every, you know, five-day major league starter. Um is Severino going to continue to pitch every five days and give you quality start after quality start? He hasn't done that in five years since he was third in the Cy Young voting in 2017. Um, you know, Garrett Cole obviously has more of a track record and what you're getting from him right now, I think you can expect to continue to get. Same with Jordan Montgomery. He's giving you what you would expect. And, you know, Jamison Tyone. So my point is... <clears throat> Excuse me. Those are the guys that have been the most responsible for this 33 and 15 start. Those guys, along with obviously Aaron Judge, who hit his 18th home run today, and Giancarlo Stanton, who's currently on the injured list. And the scary thing about Stanton, it seems that whenever he does go on the injured list, he's gone for a month. You know, it's never like a 10 day absence where like the day he's eligible or the day after he's eligible, he's ready to return. And I'm not saying that's going to be the case this time, but that has been his track record. And that's concerning because this team has been extremely top heavy starting pitching Aaron judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Anthony Rizzo's home runs. He has cooled off significantly since his hot start. Glaber Torres is clutch hitting and certain guys in the bullpen. Michael King, and he's come back to earth. Clay Holmes, he's been unbelievable. Um, And other guys in the bullpen who have stepped up their games. That is the primary reason for the 33 and 15 start. But a lot of those things, I don't know that you're willing to write down in pen right now. Well, we can count on that, or we can count on this. I still think that there's opportunity for this to go sideways. And at some point, you're going to need something out of 22% of your starting lineup. And that's Aaron Hicks, and that's Joey Gallo. And I'm not even counting the catcher position, which has been a wasteland. I know Trevino has given you much more than you could expect for a backup catcher. I like his bat. I like his energy. Uh, He's been clutch also. Higashi Yoke has been a huge disappointment, especially after the spring in which he had seven home runs. Now he's batting a buck 64 and hasn't hit a home run all season long. So if you count that, a third of your lineup is basically a black hole right now. And that's not good. That is not a all of a sudden a good off recipe for long-term success. Um the Aaron Hicks thing continues to be a problem. When everybody is back, when Stanton is back, when you get closer to the trade deadline and you can bring in another outfielder, I think you do if they're continuing to hit like this. And right now Hicks is batting 200 with an OPS of 559, and Gallo is batting 167 with an OPS of 570. Like, the major league average for OPS is like 750, all right? If you're 750, you're about average in OPS. Hicks is 559, and Gallo is 570. That's atrocious. Um, It's atrocious. And Gallo's not even... He was a good glove when the Yankees got him last season. He's not even an outstanding glove this year. You know, there's been a couple of plays in the outfield where he has misplayed. He's misjudged fly balls. He's misjudged balls off the wall. So if you're analyzing Gallo against a guy like Miguel Andujar, 
the one thing in the past that I think you could say is that Gallo's a better defensive player. I don't even think that's necessarily the case anymore. And you can't even make an argument that Gallo's a better offensive player than Miguel Andujar. Andujar got two more hits today. I said this at the very beginning of the show, and it was kind of a little bit of a tangent, but now I'll bring it back and hammer the point home. Leave Miguel Andujar in the starting lineup every single day. He is now your left fielder. All right, you still want to do the rest roulette, which isn't as necessary now with guys like Stanton and Donaldson out of the lineup. But I know you still want to move guys around and give guys days off here and there. Leave Andujar in the starting line. I suspect Boone will. I mean, Boone's track record is that if someone comes up and gets a hit or two hits every single game like Andujar is doing right now, he's going to leave him alone. But, you know, is Andujar going to have as much of a leash as Aaron Hicks has had? No, I don't think so. And that's what scares me. I don't understand why Aaron Hicks, what is his body of work? That he had a pretty decent season in 2017 when the Yankees went to Game 7 of the ALCS. I don't understand what his body of work is that he gets a longer leash than a guy like Andujar. I really, really don't. The guy is an atrocious baseball player. I mean, you see him come up in a situation with runners on base and a chance to drive in a run or a clutch situation, and it's almost automatic that he's not going to come through. It's I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I, I'm probably, you know, one of the biggest critics of Joey Gallo. I would trust Gallo in a big spot more than I would Aaron Hicks. I mean, that, Aaron Hicks is useless. He really is. And you've got this guy right now batting in the middle of the lineup for a team that's 33 and 15. So that just speaks to how great the pitching has been, Aaron Judge has been, and certain relief pitchers have been. That with this guy, Aaron Hicks, hitting in the middle of your lineup, he batted six today, you are still 33 and 15 and in first place on Memorial Day weekend. So the Yankees lose 4-2. to two. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN.